So last week we touched on this subject matter called the other stuff of life. The other stuff of life and we laid a foundation around the importance of one having to establish the foundations in your life before you even talk about the other stuff of life. And the foundation there is really your faith in Jesus. It's really your relationship with the Lord. And the question was, where are you in terms of your walk with Jesus? Are you excited? Are you confident that this relationship is alive? Or the relationship has grown stale over time? So when you get this foundation right, everything else will start making sense. And we we dealt with the first stuff of life, which was moral excellence. So we went into some detail around what moral excellence is, the whole issue of character, where we said character is very key to where God is taking you. You can be greatly anointed. You can be a person carrying a lot of gifts. But in the absence of character, you might not be able to transport, transport that gift. And we said here, character will basically determine the type of name that you have. What are you known for? Are you known for being reliably unreliable? Reliably unreliable. You make promises, you don't follow through. What are you known for? Or are you known for being that person who when you make a promise, you follow through? That ask one's policy. Where you ask me one thing, one time, and I promise to do it, and I'll do it, you do it, you don't have to follow up on me. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. That was where we started this whole issue of the other stuff of life. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. And this is what we're trying to do. And to unpack, say, how do we respond to God's promises? Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. And moral excellence with knowledge. So the Apostle Peter is coming now. He's saying, yes, we have dealt with faith. We have dealt with moral excellence. But let's add on something here. And I'd like to highlight that these supplements and these other styles of life, it's not like you build one on top of the other. Where we are saying you build knowledge on top of moral excellence. No, you need all of them. So I'm not here to say, to categorize them and say, this is the rating around these whole issues. If you are to be a productive child of God, you need all of that. It's not a case of this is more important than the other. So the Apostle Peter here is saying, supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge. Knowledge is power. You've heard that before, right? Knowledge is power. The more you know about something, the more empowered you are to deal with it. Because you see, what you're not aware of will control you. What you're not aware of will control you. But what you are aware of, you are better positioned to take control of. That's right. Now when you're talking about knowledge, this is an issue of being familiar with an aspect or some facts about something. Are you aware of what is happening around you? How clued up are you with what God is doing in your life today? 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15 
The Bible says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Other versions say, study. Study, study so that you become approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed. What that means is that when you have a worker who is clueless, there are chances that that worker can be shameful in what they do. There are times that you listen to people and they're really articulating something that they're not very much clued with. And you, you wonder, did you do your research before you make that utterance? You see, before we make comments in what is happening in our current affairs, just make sure that you've got your facts correct. Before you make comments about what is happening beyond the Limpopo River, just make sure you've got your facts right. It is important for us to be knowledgeable, otherwise we become shameful in what we do. Now the Bible says, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, God wants to use you in a great way, but he wants you to be knowledgeable in what he wants to use you in. The more you know about God, the more you are confident in articulating God before people. You see, one of our problems that has led to believers not to defend their faith is because they don't know much about their faith. Because when you know something about your faith, you're better positioned to defend the faith in which you've been found in. You see, when you're walking down the corridor at your workplace, and you walk past that water fountain, and you hear people saying stuff about God, you know what will determine whether you'll engage them or not? It's whether you are clued up about what they're talking about or not. The moment you realize that the issues they're talking about, I'm not even sure about, you will not engage. This morning, the question is, how knowledgeable are you about your faith? Unfortunately, Christians are one of the most illiterate people about their religious faith. But Zalwani are not very clued up about what God says about them in the Bible. And yet if you engage the Muslims, they will tell you what the Quran says about everything in their lives. This morning if somebody comes to you and they ask you the question, Sister, why do you speak in other tongues? What is this issue that goes on whenever you pray? Are you able to rightly divide scriptures around that aspect? When someone asks you about baptism in water, are you able to tell them that foundation? They will ask you, I was baptized in a cup of water. Is there a problem with that? Are you able to rightly divide the word and show them the light? You see, a salesman who does not know his product very well makes a lousy salesman. When that salesman is confronted with questions, he is more than likely to even question his own product. Can you imagine a tom-tom salesman coming to you, selling a product that they're not very clued up, and you start asking them a question, comparing tom-tom to gammon. And then all of a sudden they say, yeah, you know what, actually I think, I think gammon does a better job. <laughs> Do we do that as believers sometimes when it comes to our walk with the Lord? Hosea chapter 4 verse 6, another popular scripture. It says here, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 
What is very important there is for us to note, it's not the absence of knowledge that kills the people of God. It is the amount of knowledge that they have. They lack enough knowledge about what they believe in. And because of that, they are destroyed. There's nothing as dangerous as having little knowledge about something and then you walk in the confidence of that little knowledge and then you realize that you actually don't know. There's somebody who said, there's nothing as being problematic as one walking in their life thinking that they're on the right side of God and yet they're on the wrong side of God. Your entire life you're living thinking you're on the right side of God and yet you're on the wrong side of God. May that be not your portion. He says here, because of the lack of knowledge, they are then destroyed. Look at the consequences here again. He says, because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. You see, in the absence of knowledge, there are things that God cannot use us in. When I don't know how to minister healing to somebody who is sick, guess what? I won't be able to be used in that dimension of ministry. You see, when you know of God, it determines what you can get from God. What you know about God determines what you can get from God. You cannot place a demand on something that you don't know of. Your level of confidence in your walk with God is really determined by how much of God you know. Do you know why we are so worried in our lives? Is because we don't know what God says about our situation. Yes. When God says, I've got tomorrow taken care of, you will continue worrying because you don't know who is in charge of tomorrow. Come on. When you are aware that God is in control of your situation, you stop worrying. You stop fretting about what you eat tomorrow because you know that he is my provider. Yes. The reason why we carry worry and we develop ulcers, it is because we lack knowledge. So he says here, because we've rejected knowledge, I've also rejected you as my priest. This thing goes on. It says, since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. There are consequences to this issue of ignorance. The way that our children get ignored by God, it is because God is waiting to use the father and the mother to impart knowledge to the children. What you know is what you pass on. If you don't know, you can't pass on anything. That's right. So this morning I want to ask you a question. Have you delegated discipleship of your children to the church? Have you delegated the whole issue of teaching your kids prayer to church. It is important for us to understand as parents that church is simply a supplement. The core issue of discipling our kids falls on us as parents. We shall give an account of how we have raised our children. And do you know how we give account? It's when they turn 19. When stuff falls off and things start happening, you'll give an account. They can blame church, but guess where it starts? It starts with the mom and the dad. You see, our kids see us what we do. When we wake up in the morning to pray, they hear us. 
When we don't pray in the night, and some of them remind us to pray, Mommy, we haven't prayed. We need to reconsider for a moment. You see, when you go to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 13, the Bible says, Therefore my people have gone into captivity. Captivity is a place of limitation. It's a place where there's no freedom. It's a place of ignorance. It's a place where you do not call the shots in your life. When you're a captive, they tell you when to wake up and when to sleep. They tell you how much you have access to. That comes because we do not know. Therefore, my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. This morning, I want to ask you a question. Why do we go to school to study for four years to become engineers? It's because we're looking for knowledge. Doctors will go to school for six years before they're called doctors. But this morning, how much time have you spent studying what God has called you to do? Six years to be called a doctor, and zero years you're going to be called a pastor. I want to get there this morning. How much time have we devoted in what God has called us to do? How much time have we devoted in what God wants us to do in our workplaces? These principles we see in the natural, they come from the spirit. That is why Paul was telling Timothy, study yourself to be approved of God. So ignorance leads to captivity, and captivity leads to lack of freedom. You see, the absence of knowledge can cause you to lose a blessing that God has given you. You see, when you transition from one level to the next, there has to be a relative transition in the amount of knowledge you have in those areas. If you transition from being a single man to being a married man, you can no longer live on the same knowledge when you are single to when you are married. Lest you lose the very blessing that God has given you. Can I talk to the newlyweds this morning? When you got married, how much information have you started gathering concerning your new wife? How much studying is going into that new wife that God has brought into your life? What was meant to be beautiful becomes a disaster because of ignorance. That's right. You see, marriage is the closest thing to hell or the closest thing to heaven. And the difference is what you know. Maybe today your, 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 your marriage is like hell. Do something about the situation. God has promoted you at work. You cannot operate with the same knowledge that you had before the promotion. That's right. So with every transition in your life, there has to be a shift in the amount of knowledge that you have. That's right. Go there. Glory be to God. Yes. You just acquired a new vehicle. Do you even know how to change a tire? This is very important. <laughs> if you don't know how to change a tire, when you leave today, go jack your vehicle and remove the tire and put it back. 
<laughs> Maybe you don't even know where the jack is. And then you're there standing outside the car with your hazards on. And the guy's like, what's the problem? I actually don't know where the jack is. Lack of knowledge. Praise the Lord. You see, what you don't know will exclude you. If I start saying to you things like meat cover, full toss, LBW, Duckworth Lewis method. Do you know what I'm talking about? Very few of you say yes. If you didn't know anything about cricket, you are lost, you're excluded. This is what knowledge does. What you don't know will exclude you. So you get into an environment and people are talking about something. You miss out an opportunity to witness Christ because you cannot engage with them. Because you are ignorant. You've got to have a few stories in your life that you can associate with. That becomes a bridge between you and the next miracle. Praise the Lord. What you don't know will exclude you. Yesterday I went to the mall with my wife and we we're trying to buy a birthday present for somebody. And I said, let's, let's go try and buy a leather man. You know what's a leather man? Man, you should know a leather man. A leather man is that funny tool that has multiple tools. There's a screwdriver, there's a knife, there's a chisel, there's a, all sorts of tools. I've got two leather men in my house. So I started looking for this leather man. And I went in one shop. It was costing $1,200. i am like, huh? <laughs> I went to the next shop. It was 1,000 rand. I went to the next shop, 700 rands. All of a sudden, my value system changed with regard to the leather man. And I said to my, my wife, I better look after those two leather men. They are fairly expensive. So there are times that we have something and we don't know its value. And because we don't know its value, we treat it without much attention. When you don't know the value of the people around you, you will not give them attention. But, the, but the, the, the more you know about what I carry, the more you can value me. The more you value the time that I spend with you. Praise the Lord. How much do you know about the people around you? Now it is important for you to realize that you don't acquire knowledge for the sake of acquiring knowledge. You acquire knowledge in order to apply what you know. You see, we went to a men's camp in March. It was really, really a great camp. We were equipped. And a couple of the men that I've spoken to after that, they've been saying my marriage has improved because of the stuff that we're taught. But in the same one, I believe there are men who went, but stuff haven't changed in their home. Was it because they did not have knowledge? We do have knowledge, but we've not been able to apply the knowledge. You see, there are, there are so many knowledgeable fools today. They don't know how to apply the knowledge. So in the process of acquiring knowledge, we've got to ask for wisdom on how to apply the knowledge. Charles Spurgeon says, Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. 
But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. There is no fool so great a fool as knowing as a knowing fool. On that note, let's move to the next point. <laughs> so it says they supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. Self-control is our third supplement that we're dealing with right now. You see, exactly the same way a master subjects a slave to rigorous control, so is control over self. It is the ability to exercise restraint over one's impulses, emotions, or desires. Do we have desires? Do we have impulses? Do we have emotions? The, questions is, the question is, how much control do you have over all that issue, all those issues? You see, David came to a place where he said to the Lord in Psalms 19 verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. You see, when we are able to control self, self becomes a slave to us. Because the Bible says, you, for you are a slave to whatever controls you. This morning, I want to ask you a question. Who is in control of your faculty? Who is in control of where your eyes land? There's a place where the Bible says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. That I might not sin against you. That I might not look at certain things. Job said that I've made a covenant with my eyes. He was saying I'm in control with what my eye sees. You see, we get exposed to different things. The first look doesn't do much harm. But it is the second look that defiles you. Because sometimes you don't have control over the first look. The stuff just comes before you. But what you do after the first look will determine what goes on into your heart. Let me talk to men. Men are very visual. There's stuff that you look at once and you don't have to look twice. Do you know what I'm talking about? It is very important to be in charge of what goes on around you. We cannot blame the system. We cannot blame TV. We cannot blame Certain entities? No, we can't. We have to be in charge. Who is in charge of your faculties? You see, this whole issue of self-control, it is the ability to tell yourself what to do and what not to do. A great example of somebody in the Old Testament who was a self-controlled young man was Daniel. Daniel had so much restraint over himself that he could tell himself, this is enough. The first few days when our son started learning swimming, he went to the first lessons with Coach SJ. And so the coach was telling him to do stuff, put your head in the water. And he did that two, three times. And the fourth time, the two-year-old said to him, it's enough. <laughs> I'm like, Andrew, no. Just listen to the coach. He said to him, it's enough. We need to get to that place where we say, it's enough. <laughs> the 
abuse has gone on for too long. It's enough. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Can you imagine a two-year-old telling a coach, it's enough? <laughs> like, okay. Then he takes after after his mom or something. <laughs> Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. He says here, but Daniel purposed in his heart. This is the key. It begins in your heart. It says that Daniel made up his mind. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. You have the key. You hold the key to what goes on in your life. You see, your level of self-control determines your reaction when the king's meat is in front of you. Your level of control determines your reaction when the sparkling glass of wine is in front of you. How much control do you exercise over these different issues in your life? You see, I'm, I'm a kind of a person who is either all or nothing. So when I get excited about something, that becomes a song in our house. So I get to talk about, we sit on the bed, I like to my wife, man, this issue, this issue, this issue. And there was a point where my wife said, do you realize that you've been talking about this every single night for a long time? Can we change the subject? You see, I had to exercise self-restraint and to be conscious of the fact that I need to talk about other things. I had to be in control of myself. Otherwise, I could just ignore what she's saying. I'm like, this thing is what's on top of the issue in my heart right now. Let's talk about it. Do I exercise self-control? You see, Paul had control over self. Listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 26. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. I discipline my body like an athlete, telling it what it should do. You see, self-control will wake you up in the morning to go to the gym. No matter how cold it is, he says, like an athlete, I tell my body what to do. The buck stops with me. It doesn't stop with the emotions or the feelings in my body. So self-control will wake you up in the morning to go for prayer. You see, self-control will make you uncomfortable not to be amongst brothers. How self-controlled are you? He says, I discipline my body. You see, when you look at the word discipline, it's really a case of delayed gratification. Yeah. Where you're saying, I'm going to delay this pleasure so that at that point I can really enjoy what I want. I will suffer myself right now. You see, when you're an athlete, you stop competing with other people in the gym. You start competing with the time that you clocked the last race. Then you say, I did 11 hours in the comrades last time. I'm going to push myself to do 10 and a half hours. And therefore, if I have to do 24 Ks in a weekend, I have to do it. 
despite the fact that I'm the only one on the road. My eyes are landing on somebody. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So he says, I discipline my body like an athlete. You see, the issue of self-control can't be dealt with in a passive manner. Self-control requires deliberate action, intentionality, because it is contrary to the way your body was wired to function. Do you hear me? Self-control is contrary to the way your body was wired to function. Your body wants to rest. You've gone for leave for three days. You are away for three days. But you go back to work. You want another day. <laughs> huh? You are on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. You go to work on Monday. You want a Monday to be off. <laughs> What is it? Your body was designed in a certain way and if you don't exercise self-control, you will degenerate with your body. <laughs> self-control. How deliberate are you? Hmm. You see, a child of God who knows self-control knows when to stop arguing. Do you hear me? When you have self-control, you know when to stop arguing with your wife. Because you're feeling that ah, something is not right. You say, stop, stop, time out. Time out. And you ask for a time out. You go down to the other bedroom. You chill, you calm, you come back, you continue. <laughs> self-control determines you when to stop arguing. A self-controlled believer knows when to leave his girlfriend's house. <laughs> Do you know when to leave your girlfriend's house? There are certain hours that you should not be found at your girlfriend's house because they are very dangerous hours. Hallelujah. Self-control tells your hand how far to go and when not to go. Your hand, how far does your hand go when you're dating? Would your hand go where it's going if it's your sister? The Bible says love the girls like your own sisters. I heard one preacher saying would you stick your tongue in your sister's mouth? <laughs> There are no kids here, right? Can I continue? We're talking about self-control, right? <laughs> Hallelujah. Okay. Jordan, you need to hear this. This is very important. All right. Let's move on. You see, a self-controlled believer knows when to close the cookie jar or the chocolate box. <laughs> the cookie jar, the chocolate box. You see, there are people who when you open that chocolate box, they can't move their eyes away until it's empty. <laughs> you just keep on eating and eating and eating. <laughs> Self-controlled people know when to say, I'll have two bars 
That's enough. Like Andrew would say, that's enough. Come repeat after me and say, that's enough. Whatever it is in your life, you've got to be able to tell yourself, that's enough. Self-control. You're driving a powerful car. You know you can't go beyond 120, car, 120 kilometers an hour. But time after time, you've clocked the 160, the 170. Once off event, we can talk about that. But when it becomes a trend in your life, you're trading on a very, very thin line. Because you see, in a 120 zone, and they catch you doing 160, it's imprisonment. You'll call me to bail you out. <laughs> You'll have a criminal record. Those are the consequences of doing 160 in a 120 zone. And can I tell you, when you're clocking 160 on the, on the corpse thing, you're doing 175 actually on your speedometer. You know what I'm talking about? Those who do this stuff. I, I'm not very innocent on that. I do that sometimes and I need God to help me. <laughs> Self-control. When your wife tells you you're just going too fast, would you listen to her? Because wives normally do that. They become our, our conscience. Okay, so ultimately, self-control is the difference between reacting to things and responding to things. Yeah. Self-control is the difference between, between reacting and responding. You've got to be at a place where you respond and not reacting. Because when you respond, you come up with a well-thought-out plan. A well-thought-out answer. Instead of just reacting like, man, it was in the heat of the moment. I couldn't just do anything. I just had to do it. Yeah. No. You are in control. Yes. You are in charge. You see, self-control is a mark of maturity. If I'm to put a meter in your level of maturity... I go and put it in the area of self-control and see how high it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 11 says, When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. You see, thought patterns change with age. There is a way that a child thinks and is perfectly acceptable. But when a 21-year-old man continues thinking in the same pattern, something is amiss. You see, the problem with remaining a child or the problem with always throwing tantrums is that you'll be disqualified in a lot of things in life. At work, they'll say he is not mature enough to handle this contract. At church, they'll say he is not mature enough to handle a small group. Because we lack self-control. Galatians chapter 4 verse 1. He says, think of this way. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up. Even though they actually own everything their father had, they have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. You see, as long as an heir is underage, he is treated very much like a servant. So as, as long as we behave like children, there are certain things that we will never be able to move into. Yeah. 
In as much as I love my son, he's still too young for him to drive a car. I can love him so much, he can say, Daddy, buy me a car. Daddy, buy me a car. I hear what he's saying, but I don't think he needs a car right now. He probably needs a tricycle. Because in, based on his maturity, he can handle a tricycle. You see, the same thing applies with God. There are certain things that God withhold for a season for our own good. Lest the blessing becomes a curse. Hmm. You see, when one lacks self-control, you become a danger to yourself and to society. Have you ever driven behind somebody who is straddling the lines? It's either they are on the phone or they are drunk. And do you know what you do? You slow down if you are smart. If you are not smart, you try to overtake them. And you expose yourself. So when we let self-control, we become a danger to ourselves and to society. We become like a city without walls, where anyone can come in and out as they want. You see, when you are intoxicated, you have no control over stuff that goes on around you. That is why after the fact, you wake up, you're like, what happened to me last night? It's because you are not in control. Let's go on to the third, po- uh, the, the, the third point for today. Says so here, supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance. With patient endurance. You see, we need to be constantly reminded that as believers, our lives are not just a rose. Are not just rosy all the time. They are times of hardships. You see, patient endurance is a quality that distinguishes victims from victors. Patient endurance will distinguish you from whether you are a victim of circumstances or you are a victor. In the absence of patient endurance, you will always blame somebody. You will always be a victim of the past system. You will always be a victim of the working environment. A victim of how people view you. You see, the whole issue of patient endurance, it's important for us to have it as one of our weapons. Now, what, are, what is the makeup of patient endurance? I want to describe patient endurance in a number of ways. You see, far from being passive, this quality involves an active resistance to hostile powers. You see, when somebody is enduring in a patient way, there's an active involvement of resisting powers of hostility. Has your boss been hostile to you? For you to know whether you're enduring patiently, look at your demeanor when you go to work. How patient have you been? Are you still serving wholeheartedly? Or already something is rising up in your heart, something of rebellion, rebellion or something like that? It is a quality of being actively involved in resisting hostilities. Guess what? The moment you became a child of God, you entered in a non-demilitarized zone. You enter into a zone where there's constant conflict and sometimes as believers we are oblivious to the fact that we are caught up in between two worlds that are fighting. 
You look at what is happening with your family and you think it's a natural phenomenon. No. You sit in the natural, but there's a driver behind. There are powers and authorities that are gained against you. Unless you are led to what is going on, you'll always be a victim. Secondly, the whole issue of patient endurance describes a wounded soldier who endures the pain and keeps fighting the enemy. Am I talking to wounded soldiers this morning? Where you're saying, I've been fighting for the past five years. I'm at the verge of giving up. You need patient endurance for you to keep on fighting. When you understand that you're fighting a battle that you are already victorious in, you will not give up until you see the victory in the natural. You see, we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting for victory. Praise the Lord. Because Jesus overcame for us. So we are fighting from a place of victory already. When you have that mentality, you can endure whatever comes your way. You see, it it describes the ability of a plant to live under hardships and unfavorable conditions. This is a plant that says, I'm not going to die. I will live and declare the works of the Lord. You see, it's not enough to start off in a blaze of glory. We must persevere until the end. Because it's not so much how we start. It's about how we end. I don't know what battles you're fighting this morning. The Bible says, do not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, hallelujah, it talks about in due season, you shall reap a harvest. You see, there's a time in a race when an athlete experiences muscle fatigue. Muscle fatigue comes and you cannot push. That is where there's a distinction between boys and men. It is in that moment that you see the difference of those that have been laboring in the gym when everybody else was sleeping. Do you know that as a child of God, you can experience spiritual fatigue and emotional fatigue? When pressure is applied on you, when you rise up in the morning and your battery on the car is flat, you sort that one out, you try to get out of the gate, The gate is not opening. You're like, now what is happening? You sort that one out. You get into your car. You get to work. Your computer crashed. You're like, what is happening? Right through the day, you are at fights and loggerheads with people at work. Guess what happens? You get fatigued. Maybe you've been that kind of a believer who for a long time, you've been believing God for a job. You go for interview one, interview two, and they don't call you for the third interview. And that has happened season in, season out. Guess what? You get fatigued. You've been waiting for the Lord to bless you with a husband. And for a long time, things just seem not to be working out. Somebody seems not to be seeing you. What happens? Emotionally, you get fatigued. That is why the Bible says, do not grow weary. Because we get tired sometimes. Are you feeling discouraged in this season? You see, sometimes fatigue comes because of the stuff that we allow to come with us on our journey. I'm reminded of Father Abraham and Lot. Abraham received a word from the Lord. says, leave your father's kindred and go to a land that I will show you. He did not tell Abraham to bring with Lot along, but he took Lot with him, his cousin. 
And in the process, there were issues that happened until Abraham and Lot had to part ways. One of the reasons why we get fatigued in our lives, it is because there is stuff that we've allowed to come with us along this journey. There is stuff that is unnecessary in our lives. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. It says that therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. When we do not deal with that stuff that hinders us, it becomes a source of fatigue. Do you know that when you're so much addicted to certain series, certain movies, where you can't, you know, I remember back in the days there was 24. Do you know 24? Yes. Back in the days, there were people who could not just not watch 24. They would even sleep late because they are watching 24. They go to bed tired. They wake up in the morning, they don't spend enough time in the presence of God, and the spirit man is so weak, and they easily get fatigued. Is there anything wrong with watching 24 or suits? There's nothing wrong with that. But the moment it becomes a hindrance to your pursuit of strength spiritually, it becomes a problem. That is what I'm talking about. There are certain friends and relationships that we have carried with in of themselves, there's nothing wrong with it, with them. But when you leave their company, you feel like you have to start from minus five to crank yourself up. Is it necessary? It might not be necessary. Terminate. Terminator three. Fatigue. Now it is important for us to realize that when battles come our way, sometimes it has nothing to do with us. But it has everything to do with where God is taking us. When you look at Job, what had Job did to deserve what he went through? He was simply caught up in a conversation between God and the devil. And God said to the enemy, by the way, have you checked out Matle? Have you seen her faithfulness? Have you seen her demeanor when it comes to worship? And the devil says, yeah, I've checked her out. It's because you've protected her. Just remove your hand from her. You will see she will turn against you. You see, heaven is counting on you. Heaven is counting on me. So that what the Father views in us can be seen by the world. Glory be to God. So Job was just caught up in this conversation. And we thank God because Job was victorious. Despite losing everything. His wealth. His kids. And then his friends would come and tell him, listen, dude, something is wrong with you. You did something wrong. That is why all this calamity has come upon you. You know very well you haven't done anything wrong. You pray like every other believer. You fast, but things are not working out for you. People will attach stuff with you to you. They'll say it's because of the way she looks. It's because of the way she talks. It is nothing to do with that. It is because heaven has got confidence in you. Glory be to God. So we need to understand that when we go through battles, we should ignore the process and focus on the purpose. Because David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not die. I will not be afraid. I walk through it. I will go past it. 
Verse 2 of Hebrews 12 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus, your perspective determines how you deal with the issues. So Jesus looked at the pain he was going through and he despised it. Why? For the joy that was set before him. Patient endurance will require you to stay at your calamities and despise them and say, even this will not kill me. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Praise the Lord. Jesus endured the cross because he focused at the end goal. If you can focus at where God is taking you, you can endure. So as I come to an end this morning, we've dealt with four other stuffs of life. The one was moral excellence. The second was knowledge. The third was self-control. And the fourth one was patient endurance. It is important for us when we go this week to look at these four aspects of the other life and say, how have I done in these areas and have I been productive in my faith in God? Let the Lord help you. Let him show you the area of your life that has been a leakage. Where the anointing has been leaking because there is no self-control or because you are ignorant. We'll continue next week. Shall we?